Hello, and welcome to Conversation with the Experts. This series is focused on quality matters. It will cover a range of topics, all centred around how we improve the quality and safety of care for our patients. The Royal Children's Hospital has made a clear commitment to understanding why and how things go wrong. We all know that staff are well-educated, well-trained and well-intentioned. So the aim is to discover what system issues have led to adverse events or clinical incidents and identifying what changes need to be implemented so that the same problem does not keep recurring. We all know that quality does matter and our episodes will explore the ways in which we can continually improve and protect our patients, their families and our staff from harm. Hi, I'm Dr Annie Moulden. And hi, I'm Dr Rami Rima. We're paediatricians and co-medical leads of quality and safety at the Royal Children's Hospital. Sometimes, despite the best of intentions, something does go wrong in the delivery of healthcare. It might be a medication error, a delay in diagnosis or treatment, or a communication failure. Clearly, the impact to patients and their families at these times can be profound. It's also important to recognise that these occasions can be very challenging and confronting for us as clinicians. This podcast is the second in a two-part series focusing on the impact to staff and families when something does go wrong. Dr Ruth Armstrong is a neonatal intensivist and the clinical lead for neonatal quality and safety improvement here at RCH. She trained in paediatrics in the UK and Australia and is currently studying for a master's degree in healthcare quality and safety at Harvard University. Together, we'll attempt to shed a light on the impact on families and staff when things don't go to plan. Thanks for joining us, Ruth. Thank you. Before we begin, as we all know, it's much easier to talk about when things go right rather than when things go wrong. We'd like to warn that today's candid and brave discussion may be uncomfortable or triggering for some listeners. So Ruth, you've been a doctor for a long time in a few different continents and no doubt there have been times when things haven't gone to plan. Is it all doom and gloom? I have been a doctor for a long time, thank you. (laughs) No, it's not all doom and gloom. I think it's really important to realise at the outset that we all come to work with the very best of intentions and those intentions are to do a good job with everything that we do. And very rarely are incidents of harm due to overt violations or intent to cause harm, but harm nonetheless happens. And in 1999, the Institute of Medicine um, created a report called To Air is Human, which is really very famous And that called for a concerted effort to make healthcare safer. Now, there are many times when things don't go to plan and those times are actually ripe for the picking, to be honest with you. There's a lot to learn from them and analysing or reflecting upon mistakes and errors or unfortunate sequences of events can actually prevent the same from happening again. And so these great opportunities for learning and sources of learning can actually contribute to quantum shifts and breakthroughs and growth in healthcare. And so when an error occurs, whereas before it would be, and you know, when I started medicine and maybe Annie and probably not you, Romy, but um, when when we first started in medicine, errors would be swept under the carpet and just hidden away and never amount to anything just leaving a mound underneath the carpet for you to trip over every time you walked past. Whereas now we must sweep up these errors, sift through, pick out the lost item of gold jewellery, celebrate finding it and then put it somewhere safe so the same thing doesn't happen again. Um, And I hope that through our conversation we can show the benefits of 
looking into errors and and continue this just approach to error investigation and perhaps learn from some of my mistakes and those of others, not judge or blame people. And yes, the conversation might be a bit awkward at times, but hopefully we'll move through that to a place where great benefits can actually be harvested. For the vast majority of cases in hospitals and in healthcare, things do go right. And you're absolutely right that when things don't go right, it's incumbent upon us to try and look at what happened and try and make sure that that error doesn't occur again. So in your department, what types of clinical incidences are most common? Well, I work as a neonatal intensivist, as you've said, on the newborn intensive care unit or butterfly ward, as it's known here um, at the Royal Children's Hospital. And I think that the same issues happen everywhere, actually, to a greater or lesser extent. And it took me a long time to realise that, mainly because there was never any discussion about it. Thankfully, the climate's changing so that hopefully someone in another unit or another hospital or another state or another country can learn about an issue and effect positive change in their environment as a result of it. There's a really wide variety of clinical incidents that result in near misses or the potential for harm or actually cause harm on our unit. And these clinical incidents can happen to the patients or to their families or to staff, actually. And they range, as I'm sure you know, from the common to the very uncommon. And they, I think, broadly fall into a range of themes. So medication errors are the ones that I think are most talked about with um, in and around the community, but also errors that occur with feeds and fluids. You know, I work in an intensive care unit, but feeds and fluids are given on wards in every hospital in every country around the world. Um, and at the moment, to highlight a case, we have an issue with our express breast milk administration and storage. And it's surprisingly difficult, the process of management of breast milk but there's a hospital working party dealing with it at the moment. They've done a lot of work on it. There are a lot of changes that can happen from that. But, you know, something as easy as delivering milk to a baby is actually not easy and can be fraught with error. So feeds and fluids. Another big error where error can occur is in communication and documentation. And we're all aware of errors that have happened in that space and to some extent, the electronic medical record, which has helped to solve many errors in many hospitals, particularly with medication, for example, has actually contributed to lots of ongoing errors in documentation. Um, and that can't just be, you know, my unit. That must happen everywhere where these things happen. So, you know, translation errors where information is dragged in from various places that where it's already been inputted um, and it continues the mistake or the mistype or the wrong plan that happened a couple of days ago, for example, that hasn't been updated, that continues day by day in an electronic way. Clinical care. So in my particular unit, we're really interested in episodes of unplanned extubation or injury, pressure injury, particularly nasal pressure from our ventilation systems. Wound breakdown, a lot of the babies that come to our care have surgery and we get lots of surgical wound breakdown. Line management, there's big 
problems around the world with ma- the management of peripheral cannulae and also those ones that go centrally. So line management and extravasation of fluids or medications that are administered through those lines into the surrounding tissues where harm and damage to those tissues can occur. Infection is another big area where we see where that improvements can be made, particularly central line associated infection, um, equipment failures, and then occupational health and safety issues such as falls on a wet floor or a piece of heavy equipment falling over onto sometimes a patient or a member of staff. So there are lots and lots of different clinical incidents, like I've said before, ranging from the common to the uncommon, that we kind of have to get our head around and to keep a focus on in an ongoing fashion. And that's quite tricky. Thanks, Ruth. I think that um, you've highlighted the importance of of constantly surveying the landscape for the things that, that might happen, things that have happened, but things that might continue to happen. On a positive note, what are some of the things that have happened over the last five to 10 years in your department that have really significantly reduced the likelihood of harm to your patients? It's difficult to tease it out, but I have managed to think of a couple that sort of show the breadth of where change can be made. I wanted to just highlight whether we talk about doing no harm And we talk about doing that all of the time. And I wonder whether our listeners know that the the tenet of doing no harm actually comes from Hippocrates' treatise on epidemics. And he explained in that that when during illness, it's very important to keep in mind to be of benefit or be useful or do good to the patient rather than cause no harm. Now, we can't always avoid harm. Lots of our treatments are actually harmful, um, and that's why we use them. So even with the greatest of intentions, we can't avoid harm necessarily. But that tenet to be of use to our patients rather than causing no harm is what actually guides us in healthcare. And so our department, as many departments do, have lots of examples where we've made changes to reduce that likelihood of harm. Um, And it ranges from the simple to the very complex. So in addition to, you know, attending to all of the mandated issues like reporting of our central line infections and reporting of our hand hygiene rates, we do other things as well. And I think if I draw on probably the simplest thing that I've ever done from a quality and safety point of view on our unit, which was that when I first started as a consultant and this became my portfolio, our hand hygiene rates were really low. And we know that good hand hygiene is actually the most beneficial way of reducing the transmission of infection between patients to patients to staff, just around the hospital in general. And it became obvious that on our particular ward, the nursing staff had a a table where they had all of their paper charts in the days before electronic medical records, glory days, where we would all gather around at handover of each patient at each bedside. And so in order to start to address our issues with hand hygiene rates, I suggested that we popped one of the alcoholic hand sanitizer bottles in the middle of the nursing station at the back so that it was out of the way of all their documents and immediately hand hygiene rates went up because at every patient's bedside 
as we gathered around the bedside to do the handover, the, the hand shield was there in easy distance and everybody started gelling their hands. Now, at the time, it was almost revolutionary. Now you can't walk more than a few feet in a healthcare environment before you come across a bottle of the alcoholic hand hygiene or a hand hygiene station. Um, and particularly with the pandemic, everybody is used to using it now. You know, we walk around with a little bottle in our handbags um, or our pockets. That's probably the simplest thing that's had the most wide, far-reaching effect in our unit. That and it's I've interesting, done. isn't it, that for such yeah. a long time, people said we're not going to be able to improve the compliance. That's right. And actually you did. That's and, right. And it's continued to happen. Absolutely. And the hospital has a certain hand hygiene setting and regular audits that certain members of staff do. And we are on the neonatal unit, because of our particularly fragile cohort of patients, set that limit higher. Than the, than the baseline requirements um, and we routinely achieve that limit and higher because of it. So that's one of the simplest things that we've done. But we also realised that we weren't learning from our own mistakes and the mistakes of others. And so in Victoria, there's a, a statewide incident reporting system that everybody is used to using and those reports would be investigated but then they would just disappear into the ether and there would be no feedback. Now that has changed. So there is a method now whereby the reporter gets some feedback by way of an email about the results of the investigation surrounding an incident that they've reported. But prior to that happening, we developed a little newsletter whereby each week we just very briefly and quite comically sometimes present our incident reports and the result of it and suggestions for change in that sheet of paper that's then electronically and in paper form distributed amongst the nursing staff and um, any other members of staff that interact with our unit so that then we can learn from each other's mistakes and help to propagate the knowledge about how to fix things if we can fix it or raise the awareness that there are issues happening, for example, with the breast milk example that I spoke about earlier. And so that has been another relatively simple but fairly um, time-consuming way of feeding back results of investigations for errors so that we can all share the learning from them. What I love about those examples, Ruth, is it's local solutions for local problems. So it hasn't been somebody outside your department who's come over on high and told you what you should be doing. It's you guys locally getting together and saying, these are our big issues and we can find a solution that works for our particular department. That's right. And, and I think that these will translate. So people around the hospital know that I created this and I'm more than happy to share what we do so that they can use similar things in their department if they think it will work for them. And not the same thing doesn't always happen. The same issues don't always occur. The same culture isn't always there. Principles can be learned and then, like you say, can be applied to different areas so that that learning continues and growth keeps on happening. We've got other, we also decided quite some time ago now to create um, multi-craft group working groups to address some of the issues that were coming through on our incident reports or areas where we realised that we could make an improvement if we had direction from a focus group in those areas. Now, we called them silos at the time, and I think that it was really essential at the time to have these 
groups in silos or kind of individually functioning, but it's become because we've managed to grow these, they're now they're far more like collaborations and there's a lot more crossover between these groups. So we have, for example, and if you know if people want to pick up on this in their areas, we have a deteriorating patient working group because we know that patients deteriorate all the time. Now that might be inherent to them, or it might be because we haven't changed something that we could change just to optimise their care. We have what we call the Coalition Against Infection in Neonates, or CANE for short, because everybody likes a good acronym. <laughs> and that looks at, you know, the infection rates and what we can do to, for example, prevent a problem that we've got at the moment with actually causing urinary tract infections because lots of our babies have catheters in for very long times. Um, we have a model of care group called Cocoon, which for us, you know, it highlights the aim of the group. It stands, Cocoon is an acronym again, everybody loves a good one, that stands for Circle of Care Optimising Outcomes in Newborns. Um, and that group is geared towards kind of the patient at the very centre of everything that we do, but encompasses family-centred care um, and that ethos where we all, including the family, work together as a team to press forwards in the care of an infant or a neonate in my case, or a child in a paediatric hospital or an adult in, in the adult institutions that are around. We have a palliative care group, pain management group, education and research separately. Um, and last but not least, because this is equally important, a staff wellbeing group. And there's far more focus now, particularly post pandemic or during the pandemic where we are keen to maintain the well-being of our staff because we know that if we look after our staff, the staff will be able to look after their patients better. And so that's a perfect segue, Ruth. Oh, good. So happy to provide. We know that you have recently been involved um, in a critical incident and yep. uh, involving one of your patients. It's a particularly challenging time and, and you chose to become involved uh, in that incident review which is unusual. Um, we'd like you to share your experience of that. It was difficult. It was a tough time. Um, and so I'm more than happy to, I am more than happy to share it. I think because, well, like we've discussed, other people can learn. And the main thing I think to learn is that actually you don't need to be scared of these processes. Um, it was a really difficult time for everybody that was involved with this particular patient. And this incident involved me being a part of a chain of events where episodes of inflicted harm or otherwise known as non-accidental injury could have been realised as the cause of a number of hospital presentations for this particular baby. And it highlighted to me how we are often unwittingly affected by a, a cognitive bias um, and the bias that's then presented to us by investigations that have been done, for example. So in this instance, a little boy was referred into our unit with what was presumed to be a torsion or a twist of his testicle and he'd presented with discoloration in that in his groin um, now a lot of the discoloration by the time that I saw him had disappeared 
but that cognitive bias was already set in that in another esteemed institution it was thought that he had a twist of his testicle and that that would need surgical management. Now we did our appropriate investigations um, and he had a bit of a sniffle and so we did a, an, a, a, vi- a respiratory viral panel and he on that was detected to have, um, as having an adenovirus infection. Now the torted testis was ruled out on ultrasound but there was some inflammation there and we do know that an adenovirus can cause um, epididymitis or inflammation of the epididymis in, the, in, the, in that area and it can cause redness and swelling down in the inguinal region and so that cognitive bias was set with the torted testis and then changed slightly by the results of the investigation. Thinking about what then happened, mm. I guess it's also important that you chose for your reasons to be involved yeah. in the process of the investigation and obviously you've got an interest in that. You've been yeah. very, very involved in looking into things that go wrong but not necessarily things that you'd been so directly involved with. Yeah. For you as a clinician, uh, and there were very clear reasons why that diagnosis um, wasn't made, yeah. but as a clinician, how did that, how did that feel for you? And, and I guess for what we're particularly interested in is other staff who are involved in clinical incidents, and mm. that will happen to all of us at some time. Um, how, how would you advise people to actually really look after themselves and support themselves when they are involved? The first thing to realise, which takes us right back to the start, is that to err is human and I am human and so are we all. Um, And we make mistakes and we might, you know, I'm sure that I've made plenty of mistakes in my career that I've never even found out about. Although I like to think that I haven't, but I will have done. Um, And think... It was a great learning experience for me to be a part of that process, to know that I wasn't being judged, that there's always some blame that's felt, but to not be blamed by the process and for the process to be very clearly focusing on a system where we might be able to improve things for the humans that are within that system chain. Knowing that humans make mistakes Um, and knowing that we can't always be protected from those mistakes but that we can make great change. So for me there was a lot of learning that was involved. It was quite confronting. I drew upon my own resilience and I probably developed a bit more resilience but also you know my colleagues and my friends who knew that that was happening and were quite naturally concerned for me as I would be for them if it was happening to them. really does highlight, doesn't it, the importance when one of the staff members on your team is involved in a clinical incident, yeah, that right. the, the crucial role that these colleagues can actually play mm, in that's supporting right. them through that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even if it's just a text message saying, hey, are you okay? And actually, ironically, the day that we're recording this is are you okay day, um, and there are a number of colleagues that I must just reach out to and say, hey, are you okay? And it's not necessarily to do with patient care or, you know, life is difficult and that we all have our own difficulties that well, there's an added overlay to the healthcare that we provide. 
but it's really important that we do support each other through this and that the initial response to an error or to an episode of harm is not a blaming one or a knee-jerk response where you better go and get lawyered up then, that actually it's a everything's going to be okay. We will work this out. We will investigate this thoroughly and everybody takes responsibility for their actions and for where they may have a knowledge deficit or a cognitive bias. But the upshot would be to look at the process and where can we make things safer? Knowing that we haven't avoided harm for this particular patient, where can we avoid it for somebody else? Um, and to be a part of that process is actually a great honour because, you know, I was obviously involved at the start at this hospital and I managed to see it through to um, the conclusion and be a part of the solution so that other people can now learn from my mistake or my oversight, however you want to phrase it. My intent was to do good. Harm happened because I didn't pick up on an issue that was there that was hidden. And unfortunately, harm continued. And at each step of the way, the same thing that happened to me happened to other people in the chain. So we just have to keep a focus on that. And yet it upsets me. It upsets me a lot. Do I blame myself? No, I don't. But I've learned from it in the same way as when I was a very junior doctor. And I tell this to all of my trainees, so I've got no hesitation in sharing it here. There was an error in communication where my, I was in the UK, so my registrar or my senior house officer, as it's called over there, said to me, give some diuretic with the blood that I was giving to a very elderly, very frail lady who had multiple myeloma. And I was giving her three units of blood and I gave her 40 milligrams of furosemide with every single unit of blood, <laughs> which as a diuretic works really well. But I came in the next morning and the poor lady was actually peri-arrest and immediately I knew what I'd done. But it was, a, it was the failure in communication in that particular instance where I thought that he'd meant give the furosemide with every single unit, but he actually meant give one lot of furosemide for all of those units. Um, and I resuscitated her very effectively and she lived to fight another day, which is fantastic because for a while there she looked like she might not. And I cried in the tea room and the nurses all gathered around me and gave me a hug and told me it would be fine and then that was the end of it. And so now the only way that I can pass on my learnings from that is to tell my story to my juniors that come through, particularly if they make a medication error or if they misunderstand. And it highlights the need for closed loop communication, particularly in times when you're incredibly busy. It takes more time to do. You have to do it. And then in that way, I pass on my learnings and I help to feel somebody else feel better when they've made a 10 times medication error or they've slipped up in their documentation or something along those lines that we can address and then they can pass this knowledge on as well. When an adverse outcome does occur for a patient, what advice can you give to junior medical staff or senior medical staff or nursing or any other clinicians? What, what's the best thing that they should do when they realise that an error has occurred or an adverse event has occurred? That's a good question and it will come up time and time again on interviews and, you know, it's something that we should think about because it's a part of our day-to-day -day life. But 
when you have made a mistake, first of all, realize it was a mistake, right? Go easy on yourself. What we need to do is to make sure that the patient at the end of that mistake is safe. So first of all, make sure your patient is safe. Do everything that you need to do to address that safety in every way possible, okay? Then we have to do what's right. And there, there's plenty of resource out there, videos that you can watch on YouTube and, um, and around the place about the patient experience of harm. And universally, patients experience more harm because of the psychological harm that come, and their families experience harm because of that psychological harm when they don't feel safe in a healthcare setting upon which they are depending for their health. And the most important thing that they want from any process is an apology. They're not out to get money. They're not out for legal recompense. They want an apology. And it's our duty to provide that apology and to use the words, I'm sorry, or to express that regret that something has happened that shouldn't have happened. And to, in that regret, use the words, I'm sorry, or we are sorry. It's incredibly important for their ongoing well-being and for their trust within the system. It doesn't mean that you have to fall on your sword. You don't have to say, I did this or so-and-so did that. In fact, quite the opposite. You should never apportion blame and you should just stick to facts. Now, little Johnny received a 10 times error of such and such a drug. I'm sorry that happened. We will investigate it. So reassure them that you are sorry. Do it with empathy and compassion and listen to the family in the case of a child or the child in case of an older child or the family of an adult or the adult that's been involved from a patient perspective. Listen to their view, listen to how it's affected them and take it on board. Really listen to it, really hear it. Repeat it back to them if necessary and understand where they're coming from. And if you need to say sorry again, say sorry again. Because that goes a long way towards healing for them, restoring their faith. Reassure them that a process will be happening about investigation of the incident. Again, not to blame any particular members of staff, not to blame any one person for something, but to investigate the system's deficiencies, for want of a better word, that could be improved to make sure that something else doesn't happen to somebody else in the same way because that's the other thing that patients pick up on and quite often you hear them saying we just don't want this to happen to anybody else. It's interesting isn't it Bruce that yep. is such a frequent comment that we get from families even yep. when there's been quite significant harm to a child they're Absolutely. so they're so generous as long as the process has been mm. as you say empathetic and kind yep. and compassionate most most commonly they will say just make sure this doesn't happen to another child. That's and right. It's, it's a, a legacy thing. It's really important. Really important. They're very, they're very generous in that, in that desire to, yes, okay, something's happened to me or my family. I really don't want it to happen to anyone else. So let's learn from it. They're very generous in that. And there are guidelines. You know, if you're worried ever about being that person to break that news or being that person that's caused that harm, then there are guidelines 
Um, the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare devised really clear guidelines on how to do it. It's called the Australian Open Disclosure Framework. And, and we'll, we have a learning hero on that. So you should learn heroically with that. Um, and then the Victorian government has very recently introduced something that's been going on in the UK, which is the only other country that I really know a fair amount about, um, on the duty of candour. And that's a legal responsibility of every healthcare institution to make sure that where a family or a patient has had something go wrong in their care that they are apologised to and that they receive open and honest communication. And really, as a consultant or as a human that causes error to patients, my role in that kind of that open disclosure is the first step of that process. And it really does make a difference to the ongoing care of that patient. You know, an apology goes a long way. You know that in your own home, um, when something's been done to you or something's been said to you or to receive an apology goes a long way towards that healing after afterwards. And GDF Candor will be coming in in Victoria in November of 2022. And then, of course, as you mentioned previously, make sure that you look after yourself as well and get the support that you need. That's difficult for staff as well, just like you. It is difficult. And there are resources out there whereby you can get help. So, you know, if, for example, I was lying awake at night or breaking out in hot sweats, which happens, or having some, you know, post-traumatic stress, I don't want to describe myself as the victim in this because I'm not and I really object to the concept of the second victim or the healthcare victim where there's been error. I'm not a victim. I'm a human. I made an error. I'm a big girl and I can look after myself. But if I were, for example, having flashbacks or if it were upsetting my mental health, um, my ability to cope in my workspace, then there's help out there. And you just have to reach out. You've got to realise it, acknowledge it within yourself and reach out for that help. Well, thank you so much, Ruth, for your very candid and very brave discussion with us today. I know Annie and I very much appreciate it and I'm sure our listeners will too. You are such an example to us of a doctor who is always trying to better themselves and improve the system. And it's really been great to speak to you today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If this podcast has triggered you in any way and you'd like to speak with someone, please reach out to a friend, a mentor, your manager or the employee assistance program. Beyond Blue is also a good resource and details are in the description. Thanks again and take care. You've been listening to a Quality Matters podcast, part of the Conversation with the Experts series.